Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we're going to be interviewing someone very special, and I think we're going to be learning a lot. So Eric Ryan from Method Products and Oli, welcome today. Thanks. So I have, to, I, I have to say, Eric, that you're probably the guy that has made me love soap again. At least, you know, like the, the, the beautiful looking design of, of soap. I mean, it's something that I clearly saw when, when my wife, you know, like would, would bring these products at home and I was like, like wowed with that. So I guess I, I would love to really, you know, learn about your story, but why don't we go early on to, to your story and, and how did you get the entrepreneurial bug? Sure. So I, I grew up in an entrepreneur family. My, my great grandfather dropped out of pharmacy school in Iowa, moved to uh, Detroit to work for Henry when he was still running Ford for $5 a day. And ultimately, he and my grandfather started a machine and stamping company that made the parts that would go on uh, automobiles. And they continued to build that business up, up to the 80s. So as a child, I loved nothing more than going to see the plants and, and, and being around that and you know the, the family story. So as early as I remember, I was like maybe third grade playing with Legos, and I'd always be building little, little office buildings. And it just um, it came very early that I knew I someday wanted to wanted to start a company. Got it. And I know that the method is obviously the the result of of you and 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 Adam Laurie really getting together and 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 figuring that that will be a really interesting concept to to go after. But how did you how did you meet Adam? Because I know it was early on. Yeah. So Adam and our childhood friends we actually grew up uh, racing sailboats together in our youth. And um, he's somebody that was uh, was always a great friend. We kind of lost touch during the college years. He went to the West Coast. I went to the East Coast. And then we were uh, reunited when we realized we were living on the same block in San Francisco. And uh, he was in this uh, this big flat with six other guys, which, you know, arguably um, is, is not the way you'd expect is the birthplace for a, for a cleaning revolution. And uh, one of his roommates moved out, and uh, I moved in, and we had a, we had a lot of fun in our twenties at, at seventeen thirty one Pine Street. Got it, got it. So I guess the um, how was talk to us about the incubation of the idea that really gave birth to to Method. Yeah, so I was I, I came from an advertising background, and 
really my, my expertise is understanding consumer insight and building brand experiences around that. And I really loved consumer products because they're very tangible. They transcend society. And I, I love this idea, you know, kind of inspired from Richard Branson of finding a really big tired category that you could go in and change. And I like the idea that it's big, it's predictable, people know how to already make money in it, don't have to invent a business model. And I started looking, I spent a lot of time in the grocery store on some other projects, and I started spending just a lot of time looking at the cleaning aisle because it was like so big, but it was like the sea of sameness. And so my idea was like, okay, try to figure out what's the cultural shift the category is missing and in between would be the business opportunity. So first realized, well, this is back in 2000 and you know, domestic uh, design was really taking off. Home and Garden Television launched. Uh, Pottery Barn was going nationwide. And people really started to think about their homes more of an extension to themselves. So the first cultural shift was lifestyling of the home. And what if we design these products to be more of an extension of your home? I mean, I mean, you, you know, you look at a dish soap more than you actually use it. And if they're beautifully designed, you would more likely leave it on the counter versus hidden underneath the sink, out of sight, out of mind. So you're more likely to use it. And so that was kind of the first insight. And Adam and I roommates started working on that. And then we realized like, wow, like cleaning is actually a very dirty industry. You, you pollute when you clean, use poison to make your home healthier. And when we looked at the number of childhood poisonings uh, that occur every year from common household products, that didn't sit very well with us of the idea of leaving little, you know, pretty bottles of, of toxic cleaners sitting on everybody's countertops. So we saw there was a second cultural shift, which was sustainability. Um, but there was a problem, which is at that time, green products really didn't work that well. And majority of America believe green doesn't clean. So we had to figure out how do we get the mainstream into a green product to make it successful. And you know, really the big idea behind Method, we caught it, our elevator pitch was a beta for the home and taking a lot of personal care and applying it in a home care. But we took these two macro trends of you know high design and deep sustainability and brought it together in a single product offering. Got it. And at what point, I guess, in this in this exploratory phase with Adam, were you guys like, okay, I think you know we're gonna we're gonna build a business around this thing? You know, it, I think the hardest part of starting a company is just your own sense of confidence and the head games. You know, the mechanics of starting a business when you break it down, they're, they're pretty easy, but it's really taking your own kind of personal risk on your credibility and the insecurity around that is the hardest part. So we just de-risked it in little steps. Um, so the first step was we had this idea. We wrote up what we call the concept book that, that brought it to life. And we gave it to the 20 smartest people we knew from different industries. And we didn't tell them, like, come back and tell us, like, do you think this is a good idea? Because most people always, they want to crush your dream. So they'll tell you it's a better idea than than what they probably believe. So we gave them the homework assignment, come back and shoot holes in this. Tell us the top three reasons why you believe this is gonna fail. And nobody could come back with a really valid reason other than it seems so obvious, why have all these other big companies never done it before? So that gave us a little bit more confidence. And then we created our first uh, couple products, uh, very much DIY, um, developing ourselves gave it to friends. And again, everybody seemed to like the product. That gave us a little bit more confidence. And then from there, we um, created our first first little production. Um, again, kind of filling everything, labeling it at home. 
We went to all of the local independent grocery stores in the San Francisco Bay Area where you can find the manager at six in the morning and you can pitch them there on the spot and they can actually make the buying decision. So we got into about 30 stores uh, each week. Adam and I would take turns driving door to door, seeing, counting how many sold, restocking it. And that started uh, giving us more confidence to see there was sell through. From there, we did an angel round. We started going to grocery stores, warehouse direct, where you would go to like a, a regional chain. From there, we went to Target. And so it's just like step by step. We just kept de-risking it along the way. Right, right. And I guess that the, we were talking about this. So so Adam was your childhood friend. So I see many in many instances that when you're like working with childhood friends or let's say with, with family members, understanding the way in which do the, you divide and conquer the different aspects of the business, it could be a challenge. So in this case, for you guys, how did you decide how you were going to divide the roles at Method? So, you know, in the beginning, it's there's what that cliche of, um, you know, never start a, a business with with friends. And, and you can see why, like what a friendship is based on is often not what a successful business partnership requires. But Adam and I were really fortunate. We had two radically different skill sets. Adam came out of Stanford working um, for the Carnegie Institute on climate change. He has a, a degree in chemical engineering. Um, I came much more from the creative design marketing world. And we had two very, very different skill sets and kind of areas of passion um, that came together really nicely. So in the beginning, we just started dividing up kind of where that naturally lied. I, the way for shorthand, I always thought about it is Adam was inside the bottle. He had to figure out the formulas. I was outside the bottle. I had to figure out how to make it really sexy and beautiful. And um, we were just very lucky that our friendship also brought two very different skill sets to the table. Got it. And since you're talking about you being accountable for outside of the bottle, you actually were even putting your cell phone outside of the bottle. So how did that shape up your customer service approach and what did you learn from that? Yeah, as far as the design of it or the... Like the actual, your actual your actual cell phone being on the bottle. I mean, uh -huh. the design was beautiful, but you know, I'm just wondering like how, uh, yeah. like being awake like at 2 a.m. receiving calls. I mean, I don't know, like you tell us, what was that experience? Oh my God, it was, I mean, first of all, you know, you're trying to, when you create something from scratch, you want all the feedback you can. And, you know, we did it out of necessity. We just didn't have a different phone number. So I, I just put mine on and, you know, it's like customer research, um, calling you directly. And, you know, the majority of the calls, which at first we thought they were friends playing a joke on us, were people literally calling to say how much they loved our cucumber bathroom cleaner. And they were really passionate about it. And again, this is a lo very low interest category. Our goal was to create, you know, some emotional engagement there, but we never expected people could get that excited about a bathroom cleaner the way they did. And once we realized it wasn't friends playing jokes on us, you know, that was just really great validation that, you know, you're in the grind of a startup, you're insecure about it and just gives you confidence to keep going. But the more interesting calls, um, we're on very few occasions where a child, you know, had drank it or accidentally sprayed in their eyes. And it's a frantic parent um, who just wants to make sure that it's going to be OK. Uh, my joke was I always hand Adam the phone at that point, be like, Adam, it's for you. <laughs> uh, let him take. We were once in a bar on a Friday night and got one of those calls. And I was like, Adam, it's for you. <laughs> But it was also so reassuring to be able to tell them that the product is biodegradable, non-toxic, and there is nothing to worry about. Um, and for that, it was, you know, 
really validating that we did the right thing in going going down a path that ensure the safety of, of both people and the environment. Got it, got it. So what was the process? I mean, you were talking about doing this with all these other people as well during, you know, you you guys were all quite young. So I guess the, um, what was that shift or, or what was that process in, in shifting gears from making stuff in the kitchen to with, uh, and I, and I've heard you say that you were, care, you were putting on like your lab coat and, and really to building that supply chain in order to really scale up the operation. What was that process? Yeah, it's, a, it's a lot of just detective work and figuring it out. And I think that's that's the real joy of building a business is you go into a category you know nothing about. Adam, I knew nothing about how do you manufacture a product? How do you sell to a grocery store? How do you, the logistics and shipping it? But that was that was the real joy of figuring out piece by piece. And a lot of it was just trying to get to one person who then leads you to another person and then starting to assemble a team. Um, in the beginning, of course, we couldn't afford to hire. So we had to outsource a lot of it, just trying to find a consultant that could help. Um, I mean, you're just doing a lot of, you know, begging, borrowing and stealing of trying to figure out um, how to piece it together. But um, it was nothing but kind of good old fashioned detective work to find one resource after another and learn your way forward. And it's, it's the steepest of the learning curve, I think, is the, the real joy of entrepreneurship. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you did a fair amount of financing rounds to support the operation and, and, and the growth. So can you walk us a little bit through how you finance the operation? Yeah, again, really kind of classic entrepreneur story. And whenever I coach other entrepreneurs, I always recommend break it down to basic kind of steps. You know, it's usually a there's three big steps. There is concept development. There is uh, prototyping, which is kind of like your launch and learn phase, and then scaling. And then within that, there's different phases. And so I just align the capital with each need of that phase and what we wanted to prove. So I'd be very focused to say, okay, um, step one, Adam and I pulled together what few dollars we had. We were able to put together uh, $50,000. You know, $50,000, what are we going to do? We're going to create the first line of products, and we're going to prove regionally Proof of consumer acceptance. And that's all we focused on. And as soon as we got to that phase, we had that like, all right, we're now going to raise an angel round of $300,000. It's going to be friends and family because no one's going to believe in our business, but hopefully these people believe in us. And that $300,000, we are going to prove that um, we can go into these grocery chains and be successful. And then the next round, we raised a million dollars. That was our series A. And the million dollars was to be able to get national distribution at target and start scaling from there and then you know rounds came further as we needed to uh, growth capital for the business so it's just kind of those like three phases and you know often you know both the angel round and the, the series a round are they're really they're really tricky and you know the angel round i see why they're called angels because they they save you from death and these are people who don't necessarily believe in your business but they believe in you and they know you're going to figure it out in our Series A, we closed that um, in the fall of 2001, shortly after 9-11. And that was a really, really challenging, um, obviously, time uh, to be doing any sort of capital raising, let alone doing it for a premium product, go, you know, going into a recessionary environment. And this was, you know, today it's much more in vogue of uh, early stage consumer products getting distribution of major retailers. At the time, that was kind of unheard of. Um, so we got really lucky, and Steve and Herb Simon 
believed in us and probably wrote a check when, when nobody else should have. And that gave us our original Series A. And then we had some other amazing individuals like Tim Kugel, who at the time was CEO of Yahoo, um, that, that wrote some big checks and, and really believed in us and, and got us through those, uh, those awkward first couple of years. Yeah, no, and, and, and this was actually something that I wanted to, to ask you. Uh, I mean, getting the term sheet after September 11th, like massive success because when markets turn around, obviously cash is a little bit more expensive and a lot of people are talking about a potential market correction now and that it's going to be a little bit tougher perhaps to raise money. So what kind of lessons did you learn during this process that perhaps could provide some guidance for folks that, that are you know in the process and that may experience some some form of correction. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really hard to time markets. And I think there's pros and cons to wherever you launch during an economic cycle. And obviously, based on the, the value proposition, the economics of it, there's going to be uh, easier and harder times to do it. You know, the real upside to launching in a downturn, I, I kind of joke, it's a little like vacationing off season. Everything's on sale. So it makes access to resources uh, much easier, talent. Um, you know, right now, especially living here in San Francisco, the economy is just roaring locally. Getting office space is a nightmare, let alone finding great talent and being able to afford it. So there's real upsides to a, to a downturn for a startup. Um, the other one, too, is, you know, it, it really forces you to focus and um, know that you've got a winning proposition. If you can launch successfully in a downturn, you're so well positioned for uh, that upturn. And as the economy starts to take, take off, you're ready to scale and go a lot faster. Um, in the first couple of years of a business are, are, are pretty difficult. To, you know, There's a lot of um, kind of beta moments. You're constantly fine tuning, figuring out what's working, what's not working. And to do that during a slower economic time is not bad because then you're really poised to take advantage um, of the economy as, as things uh, really improve. Got it. Got it. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And we're talking here about you being in San Francisco. And and the first thing that comes that come to mind is when you're raising capital, I mean, there in, in San Francisco, those traditional sources of, of capital like VCs and let's say private equity may be used or maybe um, more oriented or, or they're used to dealing more with hyper growth companies that are that that have that type of like tech or engineering component. So given the fact that you did not have that, did you receive or experience any type of pushback when you were going out to raise money? Yeah, we had hu huge pushback. And I think it's again, this is back in 2000 and we brought in a, a CEO really early by the name of Alistair Dorwood. Um, and we found that we didn't think we were going to be able to close the Series A without having an MBA as part of the team and somebody who had deeper business experience. I think Adam and I had, you know, we were in our late 20s, still very early in our career, but we had established credibility in our areas of expertise, um, branding, design for me, uh, chemical engineering, sustainability for Adam. So we were seen as typically founders are of, of individuals who had, who had expertise in an area that was relevant, but not necessarily um, having enough holistic business uh, experience or a track record um, to be able to give us that, that level of capital. And um, I think a lot has changed in the, you know, today's environment now where 
there's so many more resources available to a founder. So if you are somebody that that comes from an area of more you know expertise versus business experience, um, VCs and, and private equity know how to then surround you with the right team to be successful. Yeah, yeah. And the CEO, that idea of bringing that CEO on board was was it something that you just say? A, thought it was a good idea based on the reactions from investors or was that someone internally that suggested doing that or a conversation with with Adam or how did that come about? You know, I think it was a little of all of it. Adam and I, I think, have uh, pretty good self-awareness of knowing where our weaknesses are and wanting to surround ourselves with people who offset that. And again, you look at majority of successful entrepreneurs, their ability to assemble and power and inspire a team is, is, is core to that. And, you know, Adam and I really like the idea of being surrounded by people who we considered smarter than us and better than us in a lot of areas. Um, so it felt very natural. Got it. And, and talking about the team, how many employees were there when the exit happened, when you guys got acquired? We were just north of probably 100, 100 employees. Pretty, you know, we at the time we had outsourced our manufacturing, and then since then we built a plant um, in the south side of Chicago, and really scaled up. So we're we're now well north of uh, a couple hundred employees at, at Method. Got it. And how did you foster employee ownership and and wealth creation amongst the employees at Method? You know, we, Adam and I were, were firm believers that everybody had to be an owner. And knowing that we were taking outside capital, the goal was to provide liquidity at, at some point. Now, liquidity could come in a lot of forms uh, from, from IPO to strategic acquisition to can continually giving um, employees the opportunities to, to sell their shares and bring in other investors. Uh, but we knew that was something that would occur. And we always envisioned the day, if the day came that we were acquired, we wanted everybody to be excited and everybody to share in the win. Um, and I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that that we did that. Got it. So um, so talking about this, so Method was acquired and, and ended up being owned by S.C. Johnson. So how how does this tra- how this this transaction come about? And sorry for this Spanglish that sometimes it just comes into place. Yeah, all good. <laughs> So yeah, so how did how did the the the, the transaction come come into place? So uh, Adam and I were not involved with with this part of the process. Uh, both he and I had stepped down to part time, so we were about fifty percent with the company at um, at the time. And we Adam's gone on to found a new company, Ripple. I've gone on to, to found uh, Ollie. Um, Ollie was also uh, uh, co invested um, with the invest uh, investors. We shared some same board members with methods. So um, there was a lot of kind of shared shared economics uh, across into into Ali. Um, so we were not uh, we were not part of the process. But for us, it was really important to that and the team was aligned to find a new partner who really believed in the mission, the values, as well as, you know, preserving um, uh, the team and the jobs and giving them even more opportunities than, than what we had created. Yeah. And and I think that you're absolutely right. Like finding that that good home for for whatever you have created. I mean, it, it's ultimately going to make you to look back and, and be proud of what you've built. And I find that perhaps in, in that process, 
uh, really understanding that was that there was some type of of approach or friendliness towards sustainability. You know, I'm sure that was um, that was a big thing for you guys. And to that regard, like how how are you seeing that shift in mindset from the what to the why in larger organizations? Yeah, it's well. I would argue it's really being driven um, by the millennial consumer more than anything and a generation that has grown up in a, a world of, of surplus of choices. And so when, when quality and features and attributes and benefits start to become commoditized, you know, you start moving up the ladder. Um, so it's not just what a company makes, it's it's why it, it makes it and uh, believing in the philosophy in the organization, and as well as, you know, social media is, is really created an environment of it's hard it's hard not to be authentic you you can't have a a public face or and a private face anymore because your private face you know will get out there um and i'm a, I'm a big i have a very very simple model of of how to build a business which is everything starts with culture from culture comes products and, and the products are really just a souvenir of that culture and if you get the culture right and you get the products right, sales and marketing gets really easy. Um, and that's very much uh, how we operated Method and, and how we operate Ollie. And just so that so that we get a little bit more visual into into that, what does it look like in like really getting the culture right? What does getting the culture right look like? There's a there's a couple components to it. I mean, the first is getting the right people on board. And we we recruit not only for skill set and expertise, but also cultural fit. And one way we do that is we part of our, our interviewing process in, involves what we call the homework assignment. So near the end of what would be a typical interview process, when you're probably about to extend an offer, we'll ask a candidate to come back and present their homework. And that that homework always consists of the same thing. There's two questions, um, which are custom designed for that role. And the third question um, is the culture question. So at Method, it was, how will you help keep Method weird? At Ali, it's how will you make life better in the park for everyone? Because we're, we're based in a national park, the Presidio. And then you also get extra, there's extra credit, which is if you joined us, what would your title be? Because, uh, uh, we kind of care so little about titles, we let you make your own, but also the idea that a title is not just your jurisdiction or your level, a title is really the, the role you're going to play here. And it's a really remarkable step because when you shift to that with a candidate, they kind of stop interviewing and they start collaborating with you. And so you get a little bit more inside look to how they think, what's their work ethic. And then when they come present, they present to a cross-functional team. It's not just their department. You know, you're, you're joining a company, not a department. And at the end of an interview or end of a homework um, presentation, like, you know, if they're going to get the job or not, just from the feeling in the room. So it, it's really a, a way to prototype the chemistry. So get the right people on board, make sure they're the right culture fit. Um, I'm also coming out of advertising, a big believer in the power of, de uh, of design, you know, that Winston Churchill quote of, we shape our buildings and then they shape us. Yeah, I think the, the same lesson applies. So, you know, it method and even the plant that we built, it's um, an absolute re reflection of the brand and it embodies the values, the behaviors that we want people to, to have every day. 
at Ali, uh, we're based in a national park, and our office is called Camp Ali. And from the second you walk in, it just sets the tone for the culture and the expectations and really allows um, uh, allows you to enable that much, much, much easier. Um, and then from there, the third step is just constantly finding ways to reinforce the values. Um, so we at Method, every Monday, there's a, an all-company meeting called The Huddle. Um, it's it's led by a different person each week. There's a lot of different things we do there that reinforce back the values and awards. Uh, at Ollie, we call it family lunch. Um, we also constantly do um, uh, what we call recess, um, creating different, since you know we're in a park, we're like, we should have recess. We find different ways to reinforce that back. Um, and then we also, you know, we take the, the whole company away for a retreat every six months. And there's always a costume party because we found that's also a great way to, to help people bond. And um, so there's just a lot of little things also that that go into constantly reinforcing the culture. Got it. Got it. So before we just say close the chapter here on on method, what was the total amount raised before the actual acquisition? How much did you guys raise? We raised 23 million um, over over that period. And uh, I look back at it now, I kind of feel like we raised too much, but um, uh, 2008 was pretty tough on the, on the business. And we decided to put a little bit more capital on the balance sheet to get us through the great recession. So I guess, I guess just to follow up on that, uh, Eric, are you a fan or do you prefer raising all the money that you can get or raising the money that you need? I'm a big believer in raising the money you need. And why would you say that's the case? Because I think a lot of bad habits come out of raising all the money you can get. And again, kind of going back to that model of breaking it down step by step. Here's the stage we're in. Here's how much capital we need. Here's what we're going to prove on that capital. Um, I really like the discipline that comes from that. And yeah, I always love the line that the hungriest wolves hunt best. And I was always amazed in our early years of method as we would be getting close to running out of capital, how efficient and how much we could get done on very few dollars compared to uh, when the bank account uh, had more money in it. Yeah, yeah, I can absolutely understand. I think that when you are like really pressed and, and you really feel the stress is when you really perform. I mean, when you get too comfortable, that's when you make serious mistakes. So I can I can see that. So after the um, the transaction of method, Eric, uh, you and Adam, basically went separate ways, even though I, I've heard that you guys still maintain a very good relationship. He goes to uh, found his uh, company, Ripple Foods, which basically is uh, plant cells and other dairy-free products from vegetable uh, proteins, and you go and start Oli. So how did you come up with, with Oli? So Oli came out of a, a project I was working on, which was um, made to matter at Target. And the program was designed around the millennial mom and bringing together innovation and brands that really connected with that audience. And we couldn't find anybody in the vitamin aisle that really had that millennial connection. So I started looking around and very similar to method, just starting with the white space. And I'm like, okay, here we go again, big category. People are literally stressing out trying to choose something healthy for them. So that was kind of a clue of like dig here. And so I started trying to figure out, okay, well, what's the culture shift the category is missing and realized that it's lifestyle. 
if you look at how millennials, every generation has a different relation to health. And the millennial relationship is very much driven by integrating health and wellness into their lifestyle. And you can see how that's played out in, you know, from, from fitness with brands like SoulCycle to cold pressed juices. Nobody was doing it in this massive category. And then, so I started playing with the concept. It's very similar to method, like, all right, how do we win on product experience? How do we change the brand relationship, make it more emotional in this low interest category? And um, I pulled together a pretty simple concept and, and just showed it to Target um, during one of my one-on-ones with a senior executive there and just asked for, for feedback. And he looks at me, he's like, how fast can you do this? It's like, all right, I guess we're doing it. So um, went back to the our capital group at, at Method and told them, you know what, like, I think part of being an entrepreneur is being scared every morning to go to work by the challenge. And like, I'm just not scared anymore. We have such a talented team, you know, an incredible culture. Business is doing so well. Like it's very, it was very comfortable. And I was like, I think I need to get back to a place where I'm scared again and taking on a new challenge. Um, so then I started stepping out of, stepping out of a uh, method and, and it wasn't the right uh, business to found with Adam. Adam's real passion is around sustainability. That's why he's gone with Ripple, you know, really trying to replace the dairy industry that has a huge impact on our environment and moving um, moving people into a, a plant-based diet. So um, Ollie's much more focused on uh, on health than it, than it can have an impact on the environment the same way he can with Ripple. And so in uh, 14 months, we put together the capital, the team, and we launched nationwide 20 products from, you know, from a blank sheet of paper um, nationwide. And uh, we've been off the races ever since. So how many people was in the team at the beginning of the launch? Uh, there was four of us really lean and having a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, the I took a look at the numbers and they were very impressive. So during the first year, you broke even. Then in 2017, I understand you were on track on doing 80 million in sales. And then 2018, the reported figure was uh, over 100 million in sales. So how, how are things progressing? Yeah, they. Uh, I think we're really proud to say we've beaten plan at the top line and bottom line our first four years in business. Well, uh, April will be our fourth anniversary of being on shelf. So it's been it's been really quick. And, you know, it's obviously it's pretty unheard of for a company to come out and break even in year one. We we, we did a, a series A and we have not raised nor do we intend to raise capital after that. We're, we're very self-sustaining. And, um, you know, when you're raising when you're writing a business plan for a series A, you're obviously very optimistic because that financial picture is is going to be the basis of, of your your valuation. And. We were we were cautious. I I didn't want to ever put ourselves in a position for a down round or put too much pressure on us to grow at an unnatural rate. Um, so we got a great valuation, um, but it was a fair value fair valuation for everybody. And really, I've never heard of a business coming out and then beating those numbers every year on both the top and the bottom line. Um, and it's it it has a lot to do with the the team we put in place. A lot of us have worked together. A lot of great veterans. Um, and just a very, very talented team that has executed flawlessly. Got it. So how much uh, capital did you guys raise for Ollie? Uh, we raised 11 million and uh, that's all. Uh, we've been very capital efficient and that that's all I think we'll ever need. 
Got it. And I see that you raised that money from people like Obvious Ventures or Base Ventures. So how did you meet these guys? Uh, again, these are all relationships that go go really far back. Um, I have a little, I have a rule, especially the second time around. I wouldn't take capital from anybody who either wasn't a current operator or a previous operator uh, versus somebody who's a professional money manager and that, that's been the, the focus of their career. I find operators as investors really understand the realities of it and can also give you that added value of, of helping you, particularly through the tough times. And you know James Joaquin, who co-founded it with Ev Williams, who's the co-founder of Twitter. Uh, James has a, a really great operating track record. He's done many startups himself before shifting into this role. But also, what I loved about Obvious is their their approach to world positive capital and investing in businesses that have a social or environmental impact. So that aligned really nicely with our values. Uh, Tim Kugel also, again, is uh, a big part and our chairman at Ali, as he was at Method, um, a fantastic operator who's uh, who started companies as well. And uh, Pat O'Day, who uh, at the time when he joined us uh, on the board of Method and now at Ali, uh, was CEO of Pete's Coffee, took it, took it public, took it back private, uh, really, really great, great operator. So our entire board and investors, um, they're all either previous or current operators. Got it. And I, and I love that. I think that having someone that really understands what you're going through and, and really being able to provide some, some good feedback and, and the tough love, I think that that's critical because I think that the equity that you give out is an equity that is not coming back. So having the right people seated on the right seats, it's without a doubt very important. So probably this time around, the second time around, would you say that it was much easier to raise money, Eric? Oh, absolutely. The first time around, we were... God, just desperate. It was so hard to raise every dollar. This time around, it was the opposite. I, I had a little bit of a food fight on my hands of uh, too too much, um, you know, the high quality problem of too, people, too many people looking to invest um, versus not enough. But, you know, with that, um, it scared me a little because the real, you know, when you're raising capital, you get beat up a lot and everything gets scrutinized. And I think that's really healthy because it, it, forces you to really ensure you're making all of the right decisions. And because of the track record coming off of method, people were willing to get on board right away. And that made me nervous. I'm like, ah, like this is, you know, it's hard starting companies and disrupting categories. And, you know, I had a lot of concerns about Ali and uh, would our thesis play out or not. So um, I actually found it a little unnerving that we weren't being scrutinized as hard as we had hoped because I, I think there's real value in that. Right. And how being this visioner that you are, Eric, how do you see the uh, the future for Oli? We are, first of all, we're just having a blast. Um, we've really kind of cracked, cracked the code on how to connect with the millennial consumer and put a strategy in place that that's scaling really, really nicely. Um, our growth is pretty predictable of, of how that will continue uh, in the U.S. just from, from our core products and our, our core retail partnerships. The real opportunity for us is going to be to continue to innovate into other forms of nutrition, but yet maintain the simplicity that we brought to the market. And then international is just a huge opportunity for us. Uh, we'll be launching into our first uh, non-U.S. country a little later this year. And um, we see uh, a very big opportunity for the brand, both in Europe and Asia. And I think that was one of the, the real thrills of Method was 
starting to turn it into a global brand and creating a brand that 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 can travel outside of the U.S. Got it. Got it. So, so kind of like uh, I, I have this question that I always ask uh, the guests, and that is, if you had the opportunity, Eric, to to go back in time, and I know that that's impossible, but let's say you had that opportunity to go back in time and and sit down with yourself and with Adam right before launching Method. What what would be one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself and to Adam as well? I always think every day, what is more likely to kill us, growing too fast or growing too slow? And I think the majority of companies you see out there that die, they die from indigestion, not starvation. And that was one of the biggest mistakes we made with, with Method of we grew too fast going into the Great Recession, and we had too many product categories at the time that in these very competitive spaces that we were taking on, and we had to re-entrench a little and um, really strengthen areas of the business and have a bigger, a stronger foundation before then growing again. So that, and you know, as an entrepreneur, it's hard to say no to growth. Um, but being disciplined of the right type of growth is is just so important. Absolutely. So what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Probably uh, LinkedIn. It's a great tool. And uh, feel free to reach out to me uh, anytime on it. Amazing. Well, Eric, it has been a pleasure to have you in the DealMaker Show. Thank you so much. Now, very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.